we receive a significant part of your missions budget, and we are very grateful for that. So I want to start by saying that first off, okay? Thank you so much for being wonderful hosts, and we had such a nice turnout for the Sunday School Hour where I was able to give you a little bit more detail and background than I can do in a sermon. But nevertheless, thank you very much. And I want to say thank you for that uh, communion meditation too. really appreciate that some things will stand no matter what comes. And we're going to talk today about a church in Smyrna that really had some difficulties. Maybe you're familiar with the church, but if you would open your Bible to Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, I'm sorry, I probably should have had scriptures on the overheads and things like that, but I forget that uh, what is really available in the modern conveniences here <laughs> in America and sort of forget what, what we could maybe do. So hopefully you'll have access to a Bible on your phone or on your tablet. I won't judge you if you're using your phone because I'm going to take it in good faith that you're reading scripture and not doing Facebook while I'm preaching, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, second letter of, in Revelation the letter to the church with a funny name of Smyrna in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. We'll read it in a moment. I just wanted to give you time to get there and give you a little bit of background about Smyrna. And I, I've chosen to do this about Smyrna because there are a lot of correlations between work in Muslim countries and our work in Kosovo, in Kosovo. At the time, Smyrna was a beautiful, important harbor city only about 35 miles north of Ephesus. Sorry, and actually today, it is still a very important harbor town in Turkey, a major city uh, known as Izmir. To, uh, to most of the seven churches, if you read all of them there in Revelation, those couple chapters, uh, Jesus levels some pretty serious uh, criticism to most of them, not all of them, five of the seven, level some pretty serious criticism, not to this church and not to the church in Philadelphia, which is a little interesting. The Lord knows, as well do we, don't we, that there is no such thing as a perfect church, right? This is not a perfect church. I was a preacher at a couple different churches. It was the, neither one of them were perfect churches. Had a lot of great stuff going on, but... There is no such thing as a perfect church. There's no such thing as perfect eldership. There's no such thing as a perfect preacher. There's no such thing as a perfect church. Because we're very imperfect and, and fallen people. Even if we're in Christ, we still do struggle with various temptations. And sometimes we fail and fail miserably. But thankfully, because of his grace and the emblems that we just shared uh, that testify to his grace... We are forgiven if we are in Christ, and we have an eternal home. I, some of you might remember what Billy Graham said some years ago. He said, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll spoil it. <laughs> really true, isn't it? <laughs> there's no such thing as a perfect church because there's no such thing in this world as perfect people. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Now, my wife comes pretty close. There she is. I know you all love her more than me. I can live with that. I can handle that. That's okay. Um, the church at Smyrna was not faulted by Jesus in this letter, but I guarantee you it was not faultless. It was not a perfect church. The Bible assures us that all people, every human being on planet Earth has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. That's why every one of us 
needs the forgiveness that can only be found in giving our life to Jesus. And then all of our sins can be and are forgiven if we live for him and trust in his grace so forth. But Jesus, for some whatever reason, has chosen to overlook the lesser faults of the church at Smyrna in this letter at this time and to the church in Philadelphia, but we're focused on Smyrna. Because despite all their many and great significant challenges, difficulties that the church faced, persecutions that they faced, they were faithful. So let's read it together. If you found a scripture somehow, Revelation 2, verses 8 and following. To the, church, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. They've been suffering, but it's going to get worse, in other words. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Now, to me, that ten days just means it's a limited thing. It's not going to go on forever. Jesus goes on, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. A key word for Smyrna and for us, I think, is the Lord saying, I know. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know the slander. Anyone on public radio or on the radio or TV or in whatever ministry who might come across like this saying, if you just give your life to Christ, your life, your whole life is going to become easier. They are a false prophet. Did you hear what I said? Anyone who teaches you will get more money or you'll have better health or you'll have great blessings in this world, if you will just give your life to Jesus, they are a false prophet, male or female, full stop. Jesus never said any such thing. He never made such a promise. In fact, he quite clearly teaches the very opposite, that if you follow Jesus in this world, you are going to have some trouble. It will not be easy. Following Jesus always comes with a price. John 15 and 16, these two chapters, you can read them uh, in, in more detail later, but I'm just going to pull out a few verses. John 15 and 16. John 15, 18 says, If the world hates you, and the world is more and more in the mode of hating Christians, aren't they? Isn't it? Keeping in mind, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And in John 16, verse 16 and following, in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. Boy, that sounds familiar in today's ISIS world or what has been. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. 
I have told you this so that when, you, when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about these things. And if you jump down verse 33 in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me you will have peace, not this world. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. One of the most basic cries of the heart in the midst of our troubles is just to be known, isn't it? Just to have someone care, to be heard in our pain. And if we get up the courage to tell a friend or a neighbor or family member about how we are feeling, about our pain, about our suffering, about what we're going through, um, we're not interested, I would imagine, in sharing that pain with people who you think may think have never had any pain, who don't know what it means to suffer, have a perfect life. We're not interested in sharing with those kind of people. Am I right? <laughs> I don't. I don't want to share my pain with people I perceive as perfect and always have it all together. I want to share with people who've been kicked around a little bit and have had some difficulties and who can understand some of what I'm going through because otherwise they can't be empathetic. I always appreciated what Proverbs 14.10 says, every heart knows, each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Now, we need to carry one another's burdens, but we can only do so much. And I doubt any of us appreciate it when we're spilling our heart out to someone about some pain or trouble or frustration, and someone says, usually very flippantly, I know, I know. You know what I want to do as a preacher of the gospel of Christ? I want to grab them by the throat and say, no, you don't know. Do you ever feel like that? Am I the only one? We cannot fully know another person's pain. So don't presume. You can be empathetic and can try. But when the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was so humiliated and beaten and crucified, says, I know your pain. Now that means something, doesn't it? He does know. And we should never forget it. I've chosen this, to speak from this text because we serve in a part of the world in Kosovo, in Kosovo, where it is not so easy to be a Christian. There are far worse places in the world, for sure, places that are more dangerous, for sure, like North Africa and other places. Uh, there are more places in the world that are far more impoverished, although Kosovo has 30% unemployment at least, and people, about 20% of the population live in abject poverty. Many people absolutely do not know what they're going to eat today or tomorrow or the next day. I mean, don't, know, don't have anything to eat. There are, but there are worse places in the world, I have to admit. And let's be very clear, our text today is not about suffering from poverty or war or ethnic hatred or a generally hard life because of bad choices that we have maybe made along the way. It's not talking about these things. And we have to admit, don't we, that we or our family or our children or me personally may have a hard life sometimes because of the bad choices we have made or others have made. 
immoral, greedy, unwise, or crazy things that we decide to do, like what happened in, in Florida, brings such pain and wreckage and affliction into our home, into our, to our door, and often breaks our heart. But a lot of times, we invited it because of choices we made. Now, since being here in the States, we've had some opportunities to talk to lots of different people, and we hear some stories and hear some of their pain, and, you know, uh, from all over. Um, and it's kind of heartbreaking when we see people suffering, but a lot of times it's because of really bad choices they or someone in their family made that has caused suffering, severe consequences, divorce, job loss, and worse. But don't equate that with suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. They're not the same. They're to be dealt with, and you have to handle it, but they're not the same, not for what I want to talk about today. In 1 Peter 2, verse 19, he has some pretty strong words when Peter says, It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they were conscious of God... But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Our text today is all about followers of Christ who suffered afflictions and poverty directly and only because they chose to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The suffering of those who follow Christ is a widespread phenomenon in our world, and some people say it's, it's getting exponentially worse in many places in the world. And maybe it is more so than it, worse than at any other time in human history since Jesus came. If you get on Google and you just do a few simple searches about suffering for Christ, you'll read stories that'll curl your hair. You ought to do it once in a while just to be thankful for the blessings you have of living in a free society like the United States of America. Open Doors is one of several ministries, many ministries perhaps, that serve to support people in persecuted countries. And they claim that each month, 300, worldwide, 322 Christians are killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ, worldwide, each month. They say each month, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed, each month. Each month, they say, 772 various forms of violence are committed against Christians, such as beatings, abductions, rapes, even forced marriages and arrests, and so on. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read stuff like this, honestly, my first thought is, who came up with these numbers? You read these things, and don't you have to ask that? Where where do they get these numbers? Even though they're a very credible organization worldwide, you know, where do they get these numbers? So let's just say they've exaggerated quite a bit. Let's cut those numbers in half. Isn't it still shocking that 161 people would be killed every month because of their faith? Or another hundred churches are burned, or Christian properties are burned? 
or that some 370, 350, whatever, I didn't do quick math here, are, are beaten or abused physically every month because of their faith, even if you cut their numbers in half? It's shocking. In Kosovo, no one has been killed for following Christ, as I know is happening in some places in the world, at least no one that we know of. And, um, but uh, in places of the world there, where a father might, might drown his own daughter, because of a decision to follow Christ. This is reality in some places. Or a brother might shoot a brother. Or a cousin might knife a cousin. Or a gang beat up someone who decides to follow Christ. It is happening in parts of the world. We've been contacted by a couple people since we've been here just last month in different conversations about, are we concerned about a rise of, of radical Islam in Kosovo, in Kosovo? And I... While I can't say that there is no rise of radical Islam in Kosovo, I can't say for sure it's happening or that it's not happening. I know that the Muslim communities of nations like Gulf states and Turkey have been sending missionaries for as long as we've been there, trying to make Kosovo more Muslim. And it is true that per capita, uh, there are more people who have fought in Syria for ISIS than any other country in the world, around 300 total. It's not very many. A lot of other places, even the U.S., have sent as many or more. But um, it's a situation we have to ask. We don't know. We've never felt threatened. Maybe you read last month about a Serb who was uh, gunned down in a north city in Mitrovica, which is not, it's it's a couple hours from our house. You might have read a story that made it sound like he was some kind of Christian martyr, that he was killed by Albanian Muslims or some, some, something like that. But I happen to know the background of this man and pretty certain that he was involved in, in killing at least 40 Albanian Kosovars at the time of the war and probably directly responsible for forcing a thousand Albanian families out of their home, homes in the time of that war. Who killed him and why? This under investigation we don't know. But I want to guarantee you one thing, he was not killed because of any Christian faith he had. He's not a martyr. Even though the Serbians gave him a state funeral in Belgrade and thousands thousands and thousands of people attended, flooded the place. Violence in Kosovo is rare. It does maybe happen. One criminal gang attacking another usually is what it is, you know, more than anything in my opinion. But in response to this exponential growth of religious violence in the world, our government, our Congress, passed the religious, International Religious Freedom Act in 1998. To be honest, I didn't really know that much about the act until I was studying for this sermon. And I am really proud that our government took such a stand and did such a thing as passed this act which clearly calls for protection against those of all people of faith. But the impetus was the persecution of Christians, especially as, 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 as I think Frank Wolf was one of the key people who sponsored this, this act that became a, f- a formal act of our Congress in 1998. In 2016, our previous president, which I will not name him, but our previous president decided that we should also add those who who suffer for not having any faith. Well, you've seen the Alexi commercials, Alexa commercials, 
Well, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> have you ever in your life ever heard of anyone suffering because they have no faith? Not in my lifetime, not in my experience, but anyway, it, in, it includes even those people now. Well, in Smyrna, it was a devoutly Roman city, even though it was in what is now Turkey. It pledged allegiance to Rome early on in the beginning of the Roman Empire. It was very polytheistic, and uh, because Christians said there is only one God, they were accused of being atheists. Did you know that? <laughs> Many of the first people who were accused of being atheists were Christians, especially in the time of the Roman Empire, because they refused to believe in many gods. They only believed in one God, so Christians were called atheists. So if you have atheist friends, you can tell that to them a little bit. With different amendments, the Religious Freedom Act has still been a very useful tool that our government uses all the time. And every year, there's a Freedom of Religion report done for almost every country in the world. And you can get online today and look it up and follow it, and you can read the report on Kosovo. Every year, you can read a new report on Kosovo and all these other nations. I want to read part of what this, this act of Congress states. Now, probably not too often that someone will quote an act of Congress in church, so I hope this doesn't seem sacrilegious, but I think it's important to see what was done. And the Pew Research Center says, of all the countries in the world, the United States is the only country that is officially monitoring religious persecution in the world today. Now, they also say Vatican City does it, but I don't count Vatican City as a real country. I think you can understand why. But, um, so, here's what it says. And remember, this was not written by me or some missionary. This is written by our government as an act of Congress. It says, the right of, to freedom of religion is under renewed, and in some cases, increasing assault in many countries around the world. More than one-half of the world's population lives under regimes that severely restrict or prohibit the freedom of their citizens to study, believe, observe, and freely practice the religious faith of their choice. Government document, remember. Not a missionary saying this. Religious believers and communities suffer both government-sponsored and government-tolerated violations of their rights of, to religious freedom. Among the many forms of such violations are state-sponsored slander campaigns, confiscations of property, surveillance by security police, including special divisions of religious police, severe prohibitions against construction and repair of places of worship, denial of the right to assemble, and, re and relegation of religious communities to illegal status through arbitrary registration laws, prohibitions against the pursuit of education or public office, prohibitions against publishing, distributing, possessing, religious literary materials, and many of these things we do deal with in Kosovo, in Kosovo, still today. But they do go on in the next point, number five of this, this act. Even more abhorrent, religious believers in many countries face severe and violent forms of religious persecution such as detention, torture, beatings, forced marriage, rape, imprisonment, enslavement, mass resettlement, and death merely for the peaceful belief in change of or practice of their faith. In many countries, religious believers are forced to meet secretly and religious leaders are targeted by national security forces and hostile mobs. And it goes on. A government document, and I'm thankful that we're the only country in the world that's paying attention to this officially. 
I think that's encouraging and something we should be proud of as Americans. So starting in 2001, every year, you can look up annual reports for every country, including Kosovo. Now, sometimes the reports are a little tainted politically. I actually have been, you know, a part of, honestly, of uh, some of the information that goes into the report on Kosovo because of being involved in the Protestant Evangelical Church and on the council and general secretary and stuff like that and being a senior ministry. The embassy, as part of their job, are demanded that they must find out and ask. Even if they don't believe a whit about Jesus, they, it is a part of their job description to find out about religious persecution in whatever country we have an embassy or a presence. Now, I know from, from my experience that a lot of these things have gone right through and have been very fairly reported from our perspective of what's going on in Kosovo. So if you want more detail, you can read about it. But just keep in mind, sometimes politics enters even these reports, especially related to, to the Serbian Orthodox Church in Kosovo. But <clears throat> they have to do it to do their job. Compared to atrocities in the Middle East, in Africa, many other places, the persecution of Christians in Kosovo is a little mild. Still, when a person decides to follow Jesus in Kosovo, bad stuff usually happens, at least some, something. Um, and they, people there have to pay a price that most of you, most Americans, would not expect and for which you would be unprepared. Maybe. And despite 17 years of pressing the issue, 18 years we've been there, we started within the first year, there still today is no place, no place in Kosovo where if a believer dies, they can officially be buried with the symbols of the Christian faith, namely a cross. Not one place in our entire little country. Just let that simmer in your head a little bit. We've had death announcements. What if the government came in and said, there's no place for a believer, especially if you're going to put a cross on it? That'd be pretty hard to take, wouldn't it? It's been that way the entire time we've been there. And we're still fighting that battle. Our embassy has helped. Our last ambassador, even though he's a flaming liberal, he did actually visit a grave where we had a big controversy and they refused to allow. They, the mayor temporar said, temporarily, you can bury that person there. It's not officially Protestant, so you, you can't put a cross. And then somebody said you could put a cross. The family comes with a cross and the, the people in charge said, no, get that cross out of here. There can be no cross. And it was a, oh, a big, a big problem. And still today, we don't know if his body is going to be allowed to be there because it's not a place for Christians. Because in Kosovo, every public graveyard is run by the Muslims. Everyone. Now, some of the mayors will say, oh, they're public and they're for everyone. Nonsense. There's a great big mosque in, the, in a preparation building for those who die on every, in every cemetery in Kosovo. And Christians are not welcome. At one time, a pastor friend, his daughter died. They had to bury the little daughter in the woods. We went through, uh, like a, your four-wheelers have never seen mud and snow, like what we had to go through, to bury his little baby girl who died prematurely. Like, I don't know, four or five months old. And then his wife's mother, who also came to Christ, died and she made explicit directions to her family and friends, I want to be buried as a Christian. I haven't been a Muslim for a long time. But her brothers showed up 
uh, my, uh, the sons showed up and took over and forced her to be buried as a Muslim with an imam and all the symbols, turned face Mecca and all that, and we had 200 Christians that all we could do was stand and watch. No kidding. I was so angry, I took pictures on my cell phone at a funeral, at a burial site, which I, was completely improper, but it was just horrible. Such insults. Only one church in 18 years has been given partial <laughs> permission to build a building. Uh, the city, after 10 years of asking, finally begrudgingly allowed them to build, but another ministry hasn't okayed it yet today, even though they did have their opening. They, they, were, they were advised, you better get building while you can before the city changes their mind. So the national government has to come along and put their stamp of approval on it. If, if they say no, I don't know what they're going to do. There'll be a big court battle, I know that, because they've tried to do everything by the book. And still, they're the first one in 18 years, and it's still not even completely official. In Kosovo, churches have no legal status. They're not allowed to register as churches for any tax or utility purposes and are taxed and charged for utilities, just like they were a for-profit business. Even pay more than you would pay as, we would pay as individuals. They pay like they're a for-profit business. Very often the mosque leaders with big international money from Gulf states and Turkey and so forth just, just take public land to put a mosque on it. They did that in our town. What was public, former, it was public land. They just said, hey, that's a nice piece of property for a mosque. Saudis came in and funded through big money at it and they just took a piece of public property and put a mosque and put, a, put the imam's house on it and then it went through privatization and a former, a later the owner said, hey, huh, the cadaster records show this is my property. Why is there a mosque and the imam's house on it? Because <laughs> they just thought they could. Who's going to stop them? Individual Christians are often ridiculed, ostracized, banished from their family. Some have been beaten, some have been choked, some have been threatened with death. In our small fellowship, although no one's actually been killed, in our small fellowship, 18 people so far in 18 years who've, who have been baptized, who followed Christ and said, I'm going to take a stand for Jesus. In our church, one young man was beaten. Two adult girls were choked by their brothers. One other young man had to leave his home for, for, for a better part of a week or so till we got things sorted out. Another adult man was threatened by a gang of his relatives to be hung on the closest telephone pole. And the whole family was thrown out of the long time for, where he grew up family home by his grandfather with his wife and his kids, three kids. For months they just lived in whoever would take him in for a few days or a few weeks. All today continually face harassment by family members, neighbors, work associates, various kinds, and almost all remain faithful to the Lord to this day. I want to talk about Tina. Some of you in the Sunday school saw a picture of Tina, childhood friend of our youngest daughter, Lydia, best little girlfriend, in their houses back and forth all the time. Tina came to Christ and was baptized a year ago last December after 17 years of daily contact with her. And with her sister and her brother who had come to Christ also earlier and with us. 
Her mother, not the father in this case, but her mother constantly complained whenever Tina wanted to talk about being involved with anything related to Christ or the church, and she would constantly say things like, you're killing me, you're going to put me in an early grave, and all this stuff, and the aunts and the uncles and the cousins would pile on. Now, I want you to understand, Tina loves her mother, and we encourage all of our believers to respect and love their parents, absolutely but they still have to take a stand for Jesus. Tina, after she was baptized and she was talking with Ruth and, and talking about things, and she said, you know, boy, you'd pray your, your kids would never say such a thing, but here's what she said. She said, I love my mom, but my mom is like the perfect instrument of Satan. She doesn't stop. And she said, it's like she, she just can't even begin to think that anything else might be true than Islam. And the other part of the tragedy is, she is completely ignorant about Islam herself. She couldn't quote one verse of the Quran if her life depended on it. She wouldn't have any idea most of the words, the Arabic words they're forced to repeat even mean. But she just knows what Tina did was wrong. Tina calls her perfect instrument of Satan. <laughs> she says, I feel like at this point my mom's incapable of even comprehending what it means to follow Jesus and who Jesus is. Well, other things have happened. Journalists have been beaten up and threatened and, and uh, uh, crosses put on their apartment doors and uh, big, ugly, red, dripping, blood-like painted crosses. Uh, she's actually Roman Catholic, but uh, because of her speaking out against Turkish influence and stuff like that in Kosovo. But when you and I read this letter to the Church of Smyrna, we probably have a different reaction to it than the first recipients, the first people who read it. And we probably have a different reaction to it than suffering people around the world have to it today. And a different reaction than people in Kosovo when they read it, how they respond to these words. But how does a letter written like this to Smyrna apply to us? How does it apply to you as a follower of Jesus in this American culture? Generally, I think most of you suffer not so much for following Jesus. I don't mean that as a judgment, that's just a reality. Fortunately, we live in a place where freedom of religion is honored and respected for the most part. But if suffering for Christ has not come for you yet, it probably will in some form. Are you ready? Will you stand? Will you be faithful? Is it worth it to you? The Christians at Smyrna are described as undergoing the most severe persecutions for their faith. The Greek words kind of actually sort of indicate an attempt to squeeze the very life out of the church in Smyrna. To completely snuff it out. One of the early Christian fathers named Polycarp was a direct disciple of the Apostle John who writes down Jesus' words here in this revelation. And Polycarp, as an 86-year-old man, was burned to death at the stake in Smyrna because he refused to recant, to give up his faith in Jesus. He said, I cannot give up my faith in Jesus. I cannot betray my Lord in this very place a few years later. 
Historically, the, church, the city of Smyrna was said to be known for its faithfulness to powerful allies, first the Greeks and then later the Romans, interestingly. They, they, were very, they were very committed to the big dog, but when the big dog changed, they were quick to jump loyalty. But the, they were known by the Romans as a faithful city, and even emperors like Hadrian came to Smyrna and rewarded Smyrna with all kinds of money and building projects for being faithful to Rome. So to be faithful was like, a, was like a cultural mantra. Be faithful to the Romans. They help us so much and they give us money and do good stuff for us. So be faithful. So when Jesus tells the suffering church in Smyrna, be faithful, they knew it was significant. It meant something deep for them. Be faithful. Jesus says in 2.10, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now I want to tell you, no one but Jesus could ask for such loyalty, right? No one but Jesus can reward such loyalty either, and he will. So what does faithfulness look like to you? What does Jesus mean when he tells you be faithful. How does that apply in your circumstance where you are? Jesus says, we will be rewarded with a crown of life and the second death will not touch us at all. What is the second death? Well, first death is when we die and we're put in a casket. The second death is when we are faced with eternity without God because of choices we made here. The choice mainly to ignore Jesus. Then you're faced with the second death. You don't want God in this life. You're not going to have God in the second life. That's the second death. Jesus says to them, be faithful unto death, and you will be rewarded with the crown of life, and you will not be touched. You'll have no fear whatsoever of a second death apart from God. Now, when death comes, it cannot ultimately hurt us. It ushers us in, as was said this morning, into the eternal presence of Christ, whatever that looks like, however that's going to be played out, but I guarantee you it's going to be good. <laughs> Is it worth it? Is it worth it to you? The Smyrnans would say, yes, it's worth it, even to the point of death. Kosovars and others around the world who are suffering today, according to the Act of Congress, one half of the world's population who are, have believers in it, are suffering today. What would they say? I think they would say, yes, it's worth it. What do you say here at Springfield Church Christ? Yes, it's worth it? I pray so. In the movie, The Darkest Hour, which I loved and highly recommend if you haven't seen it, about Winston Churchill, Churchill is attributed as saying, Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Great, great statement. Love it, but it misses the mark for Christians. Do you know why? First part. Our success in Christ is final. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, says you will be with me, and that's it. Those words stand still today. So let's be faithful. Our success in Christ 
is final. If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ yet, I would implore you and beg you to do that in our time of invitation today. But before we have our invitation, let's stand and pray together, would you? Heavenly Father, we're humbled by this church in Smyrna and by so many around the world who are today suffering maybe very significantly, very seriously for their faith in, in you, in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you help them to be strong through their times of struggle, and particularly for the believers in, in Kosovo, in Kosovo, our friends who, who are we're all part of the body of Christ. And if there's one here this morning who needs to give their life to Christ, who's willing to count the cost and say, I believe and I will follow, pray that you'll give them strength to make a decision before it's too late. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.